Hey there, dear listener. I would just like to say thank you for listening. And before we begin, my name is Blaine, and I am a biologist who specializes in herpetology. All the opinions and thoughts expressed here are my own and are not affiliated with any institution or organization with which I may be a member. This is simply an outgrowth of my passion to share science and my excitement of things I learn along the way. I may read sections of papers, but I will make it explicitly clear when I read directly from those papers and that those authors are not affiliated with me unless otherwise stated. Anything else is simply my thoughts or explanations of what I know or what I have read. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Silly Salamander Scientist podcast. Today, I am going to be doing something a little bit more off the cuff, and I'm going to be talking to you about science, why people get the wrong idea of what science is, why people get who scientists are wrong, and some of the misconceptions that you likely have about science based on your education. Believe it or not, the public school education system doesn't always get everything right. Crazy, I know. Now, you're probably familiar with science from the scientific method that you were taught in school, which is observation, hypothesis, testing, analyzing, and conclusions. The five simple steps to doing science, completing science, and adding to the general overall knowledge of the world and the world around us and the things that we should all know. And that's a fine understanding about how science kind of goes about, but that's not really how science works. Science is not the scientific method. If you just did the scientific method, you'd kind of be a bad scientist. And I know that sounds hypocritical, but please bear with me and, and let me explain. So let's go through each of the steps of the scientific method one by one and see why it's not as simple as you think. So step one is observation. You have to look at the world around you and see a problem that might not be answered. And when it comes to observations, these could be things that happen during your experiment or during your literature search of, of a gap in knowledge that might exist that you want to answer, that you think you could devise an experiment for or conduct some type of investigation into it to better understand this certain process or this certain thing about an animal, and you think you have a really good idea and it really piques your interest and you're like, I want to spend the next six months or four years of my life looking at this one very specific thing or this one very broad thing. And with observations is the very first step that people kind of get hung up on in the misunderstanding of what science actually is. Because you can't just, you can't just make an observation and run with it. You, you can't just make an observation and then say, I'm going to go down this path and I'm going to study it. It doesn't really work like that. This is really where the step is going to be, where you're going to be conducting a literature review, a literature search. The things that are already published on the subject or tangentially or even non-tangentially related to the thing you want to study. So taking an example, let's say we want to, we, we, see, we see bullfrogs. We see bullfrogs basking on a log and you're like, man, I really like bullfrogs. I want to study bullfrogs. So you go and you you you're like I want to I want to study these and you go to your advisor you go to your your lab or whatever it is where you are actually conducting your experiments and you're like I I want to look at bullfrogs they say great go hit the books and what we mean by books is going to be the literature the peer reviewed articles that have come out before you were ever even born and the more recent ones obviously because you want to be up to date on your your information and you go read about it you go read every 
single paper that has ever been published into a scientific journal about bullfrogs. You pull on your knowledge of bullfrogs, of amphibian biology, of frog-specific studies, and, and you go read. And this step can last a really, really long time. Some people can spend even up to a year just reading papers to try and get a decent grasp of amphibian biology in, in, in regards to this specific thing, or of a specific thing in general. They can spend years never finishing all the literature that might be on something because something might be so complex that papers may even disagree. And then you have to go into those disagreements, and then you have to go into the methods, and you have to look at all these different types of things to even maybe start kind of getting an idea of how you might want your experiment to go. Now, this step is critical because there is a number of different ways that you can fall into different kinds of pit holes and pitfall traps and things like that whenever you're designing your experiment to where your experiment might be inherently flawed from the beginning. There is entire classes that you're going to take in your graduate school, uh, in your graduate school career just based on not making simple mistakes. There's a term called pseudo-replication. There's, you know, demonic intrusions, non-demonic intrusions, which are just as interesting as they might sound, even though they might not inherently have anything to do with demons. But hey, you know, we can't win them all, I suppose. But th there are entire lectures and courses based on things like bioethics, based on things to try and make your experiment not flawed to where you can get it published. This is not an easy step. Observation and trying to figure out how you might go about something is one of the hardest steps in the entirety of the scientific process. Because when you're working from basically nothing, when you don't have anyone to guide you and say, here's how we want to do this, or even if you do have someone who's like, here's how, what do we want to study, or here's how we want to do something, things can still get really, really complicated really quickly with logistics, with any type of experiment, there are, you're always going to run into problems. You're always going to have to adjust. But observation is as simple as it sounds, but so complex in practice. Because there is a big step between observation and a hypothesis. There are so many steps. There is communications, there is licensing, there is logistics. There is all types of steps that you have to do really ever before you get into hypothesis, because if you don't really get into high, you know, if you don't get everything set up before you get a hypothesis, then, then there's no real way that you can do the experiment. So we want to study bullfrogs. So we've gone and we've read all of the literature, and we think we have a decent idea about how to go about doing, um, about how we do the, the actual experiment itself. And so we begin to write. We have taken our notes, we have compiled things, we've kind of been working, and now we get to two or three or four very critical steps, depending on what type of um, science you're, you're doing. And I'm only speaking from a more ecological standpoint and an academic standpoint. I am not talking about medical. I am not talking about um, like microbiology or things that might have to do with animal experimentation directly in terms of like neurochemistry, neurobiology, stress responses, anything really like that. I'm more talking about uh, what I have personal experience in um, in doing. Even though I, I work with people who do those types of things, I cannot really speak to what different steps might be in those. Now, when it comes to the steps that you have your, your kind of document written, there are a couple of different things that you need 
to do. You need to acquire funding. You can't do a project if you don't have funding for that project. So you have to write grants, and grants are things where you are, are good because you can kind of get your ideas a little bit more organized. You have to be able to convince an entire, an entire organization or a group of people that your research is worth doing. It, it's worth investigating and investing your money and your time, their money, into this single project. What void is it going to fill? What is it going to provide? Now, you know, as, as someone who is always curious, there's always value in adding knowledge, but that's not really how the world works. If there's no defined goal, if there's no explicit goal other than I just want to look at it, it's not really going to work because we don't live in an age where most people get to just fund their own research. Back in the start of science and the scientific process, there were more, how do I say, there were more simple questions that were being asked, which are fine, but you have to be able to acquire materials and perform those experiments. So like you would have to uh, buy a microscope to ever even look at the structure of a leaf cell you would have to fund that yourself, which is why a lot of old science is done by old rich white men or old rich people, or, you know, the, the kind of the, the upper echelon, if you will. That, that's where how a lot of older science, at least in the Western, not necessarily talking about anything like uh, the Assyrians or the, um, the Persians who, who did science and observations a long time ago. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about more the modern day science of the West. We don't live in an era where we can just go fund ourselves based on our own money, or at least we don't really do that anymore. Those are kind of like R&D departments for corporations or whatnot, but it's not quite the same thing. Not you as an individual person are likely as a researcher to ever do anything like that, unless you just so happen to have a lot of money, which is just really not something that doesn't happen in science. You, you don't get into science for the money of it. You do it for the love of what you're doing, you know? And so this kind of takes us into step two, which is hypothesis. So during this time where you're trying to convince people to support you, convince the, the school to support you, we kind of get into the, the hypothesis section, which is what do you expect to find and what do you hope to add? This is where, you know, you, you have to get your grants. You have to define your problem. And there's something called IACUC, which is Internal, Internal Animal Care and Use Committee, if you are going to be working with any type of animals, which most likely you, you probably are. You wouldn't do these if you were in physics or whatnot. Um, but you have to basically convince a group of people, which are typically um, going to be inside and outside of that institution, uh, where they're going to prove the protocol or the methods that you are using if you're going to be working with live animals to basically say, yeah, this is this is fine, this is to convention, there's no, no any any kind of harm that might come to these animals, more than intended type of harm, depending on what type of study you're going to be getting into. And they say, yes, this is a humane study, this is ethical, here are, this is your written obligation to follow the procedures and to not cause any undue harm. Causing any undue harm is gets people in trouble. It gets you kicked out of organizations. It gets you expelled from the scientific community if you are causing undue harm for no reason, if you are breaking ethical codes. There is an ethical code among scientists that you don't lie, that you don't cause undue stress or harm on animals unless it is absolutely necessary to do that, to do that, that thing, not lying. You don't get to lie. You don't do any of that. But there are experiments and situations where you inherently have to cause harm, and they're terrible. They, 
say you're studying your mice neurochemistry, you're obviously going to have to have mice neurochemistry. You know, you're going to have to you're going to have to kill mice. Or you're going to have to do something to those mice's brains to be able to study those. If you are studying the lethal dose of a certain toxin on a different animal, you're going to have to expose that animal to that toxin. But these studies are very limited and very very heavily scrutinized. These aren't just people in their basement saying, I really want to work with mice or rats. I want to see what kills them. It doesn't work like that. There are so many more safety regulations and laws in place to prevent things like the Pavlov's dog experiment from happening again. And if you don't know what that is, go look it up. It is a very sad thing. There are a lot of reasons that these laws exist. Just like most laws are written in blood, most scientific standards are written from experience and the things that we don't want to repeat again because we don't have a reason to. There is pretty much no good reason for these things to be happening. And when it talks about, and when we could talk about um, like animal experimentation, those things are very heavily criticized. But most of the non most of the scientific community is pretty well against animal testing or but not animal experimentation. So animal experimentation and animal testing are kind of two different things. When you talk about animal testing, those are things like cosmetic um, companies who might be testing cosmetic products on animals, and those things are pretty well accepted to kind of be bad. But in scientific experimentation, those things are a little bit different because those things don't just get to happen. Those go through a lot of scrutiny, so much scrutiny that a lot of studies get rejected for not having proper methods or even proper citation within how they describe their experiment, they might be rejected for. And you can be rejected without reason. There are very specific rules that people have to follow when they're working with animals, and you don't just get to do whatever you want. And so for our hypotheses, kind of hopping back to wherever, or hopping back to our hypotheses, hopping back to those, you have to do those in certain ways up to certain standards. So you have your null hypothesis, which is typically going to be there are no differences between groups, and then your alternate hypothesis, which is there are differences between the groups. And now your hypothesis is more than just, you know, groups and things like that. There are things you expect to find and things you are you intend to find in X, Y, and Z, but your hypothesis is kind of the most important part of your paper. But getting from observation to hypothesis is not a, I see light, I want to see what makes the light. It doesn't work like that in modern science. There are so many more steps that go into it from reading papers and seeing what their hypotheses are, what they tested, what they found results, in, and then going through and refining very specific wording because your wording is so important in your hypothesis that if you get your hypothesis wrong your entire study could be messed up and so observation isn't a fast track to hypothesis a hypothesis is not a fast track to testing there are many many steps in between those two so going from hypothesis to testing let's say you got your hypothesis worked out and say you want go back to our bullfrog example say you want to you want to look at bullfrogs and you want to look at bullfrog um, basking in the sunlight you would say, I think bullfrogs are more likely to be basking in the mornings than basking after 12 p.m. And so that those are your hypotheses, just as an example. Now, you have to design experiments to be able to go, to go look at that. So designing your experiments is another pitfall because there are a number of different ways that you can do experiments so incorrectly and so incorrectly that it doesn't matter what results you found because if your methods of how you got those results aren't sound, your science isn't sound. You, can't, you won't be able to publish your, your paper. 
it won't be good. It won't be good science. It won't be accepted. Testing is a very important methodology that you get. You have to learn. You don't get to learn. You have to learn it. That you have to learn in your in your graduate career in your undergraduate career, depending on if you're going to go into like uh, undergraduate research or anything like that. You don't just get to hop into testing because if you do your testing wrong, you can cause undue harm, you can cause stress, you can influence your experiment, you can do any number of things to make your results untrustworthy. And untrustworthy results are no results at all. Because if you get to your results and your methods aren't sound, and your statistics say you have something significant, no one's going to believe you. No one is going to accept your results worth anything because your, frankly, your, your experiment is fucked. There's no saving what you've done because you inherently screwed everything up from the get-go. So there are so many people that you would need to talk to, experts in your field, people who might be doing along the same research. You reach out to them, you might be asking... You, you, you might ask them how they do this thing or you, you're like your, your PI, your primary investigator might know people and you ask them and you get advice and you go back and forth with a number of different people about how you might do things, especially if you're doing like interdisciplinary things to where one person doesn't really have the background of one thing. You're going to have to reach out to other people and they might have different ideas and then you read your materials and methods on the papers back from your observation in between hypothesis on your literature review and you start to design your own experiment. And it's not a quick process. It is not something that you just get to skip over and say, oh, I just want to go, I'm going to go look at frogs and I'm going to go count the time of when they're out. It doesn't work like that. It just simply doesn't. Now, there are more simple and more uh, complex areas that might have different testing, but overall, there is not just, I want to do this, and I want to do it again, and I want to do here, and I want to do that. There are a number of different layers involved, including replication, pseudo-replication, um, what, you know, which, which sites you choose, what time of year you choose, how long the experiment runs how you're even measuring your results, how you're quantifying those results, if you're quantifying those results, what type of data you're going to collect, how much data you're going to collect, what you're going to include in your study, what you're going to reject in your study. There are so many different options. And moving from your testing to your analyzing stage is testing, and by testing I mean a data gathering, which you might have heard it called as well. Um, moving from your gathered data to analyzing your data is a massive step as well. Because if you how you collected data is incorrect and you go to analyze it, you're in a bad situation. You're in a you're in such a bad situation that you you're not going to be able to draw any type of proper conclusions for for your study. You're going to be left out in the cold with nothing to show for your possible years of work that you've dedicated to learning about bullfrogs. You, you're, you're, out, you're left out to dry. And there are actually people who, who kind of dedicate their time or their expertise into just trying to be able to analyze data and try to fix data that other people might have corrected, kind, collected kind of incorrectly or formatted incorrectly, not necessarily like changing data or anything like that, but like transforming data to where it's actually to be able to be analyzed. And there, you go through so many classes on how to properly analyze data and not draw incorrect conclusions from your data. Because there are obviously any type of number of different tests that you might be able to run on a specific data set to, to draw 
conclusions from. But one of the reasons that um, you you can't just run any kind of test is because those those analyses are for different things. Those statistic statistical tests are for different things, and understanding what those tests are for and the and the um, the shortcomings that all those experiments might have is very very important because if you use the wrong test or you don't use another test or your you know your analysis is flawed in some type of way again your results are useless your experiment is useless it is critical for you to be able to properly analyze your data to properly organize your data before you analyze it because if you run a test and it comes out significant but you analyze the data from columns to rows instead of rows to columns or something like that your experiment is inherently useless you know if, if you because a lot of these tests are robust which means they're they're not um prone to being in- incorrect with values that are that are wrong so basically you might and, and i didn't explain that well but like you could run a test and it'd be correct by the test standard but incorrect by any other standard so you don't just get to sit around and run whatever statistical test and there's no there's no guide there's no one proper way to necessarily do something versus a, another depending on what your type of experiment because one type of experiment like uh, if you're doing like cell biology or something you might just run t-test you, you might run t-test excuse me you know, you, you might not run ANOVAs, but whenever you run up against people who ask you, why didn't you run an ANOVA, and you don't have an answer, you're in deep shit. Because if you can't answer those questions, you're going to get rejected. And they and if you're submitting the paper, they might reject it um, for cause or for no cause. They might just reject it outright, or they might say, this needs some revisions, do it again, and then tell me your results. And if you do those incorrect you just might not be able to publish your paper, you know, because some of these scientific communities are kind of small worlds where people know everybody. And if you do something incorrectly so, so long and so many times that you, and you can't justify those things, you, you, you might be in a bad spot, you know? Um, so getting from analyzing to conclusions is again, another very critical step that is really glossed over in your undergraduate or your, like your, your, your grade school because your conclusions also have to be typically pretty narrow because what you're looking at also has to be pretty narrow. So if you try and take from, it's like taking um, a statistic about a sample and applying it to the population. You have to be really careful about what your conclusions are and how broad those implications might be. Because let's say if you're looking at, um, oh goodness, what can I say? That might not get me in trouble. If you're looking at how many lobsters are red versus how many lobsters are blue and you study one population of lobsters and you find 50 blue ones out of 100 and you say the the proportion of red to blue lobsters is 50 percent but you've studied one population that's not inherently correct because if you go to another population and they're 100 percent red you're wrong you have to be very very careful with how your conclusions are drawn. And this is practiced all throughout every field of science. When you see something that is really sensationalized and you're like, I can't believe that, like chocolate cures cancer, it is 100%, almost undoubtedly, in, in, in every single case I've ever seen in my life where there is something that is so hard to believe, it has always been because the study itself was sensationalized for people to get clicks on. If you see something like new cancer drug reverses 100% of cancers, that is pretty much going to be 
it's not necessarily a lie, but it's going to be sensationalized. When you go read the articles, um, actually, I can, give you, I can give you an example, a firsthand example. I was sent an article that was, um, does the COVID vaccine alter DNA? And I went and I read it. I read the actual study. I didn't read the article. I didn't care about the article. I went and read the actual study of what it was based on. And I read every single word. I don't even, I'm not even in medical. But basically what this experiment did is they took the COVID, I think it was the Moderna COVID vaccine, and took some human liver cells, put it in a petri dish, and shot the COVID vaccine on there. And there, even in the paper, they were like, we just wanted to see if there was any change. And like, I don't remember what the actual uh, inclination, the actual uh, end result of that was, but they say in the paper, this is not a representative of what happens in the human body. There is so much more that goes on in the human body that this, this study is not looking at any of those things. It is narrow in scope when it comes to its implications and what happens at the end. There is sensationalized articles out there that draw a conclusion just to draw you in to try and learn about something, but the people who write those things are typically not going to be very educated in science or their specialty isn't going to be science communication. Their entire people's jobs who are science communication, like Kyle Hill or Forrest Valkai. Both of those are on YouTube. Please go look them up. They're fantastic. Um, and their job is to communicate scientific results and scientific ideas in a way that people can understand. But one of the things that happens when you're trying to communicate scientific results is that things get mistranslated. Because when you're talking to someone who doesn't have a scientific background, you can't talk to them the same way that you can talk to someone who does. There are certain assumptions that you have to make. And you do this with anyone, even, even if it's not scientific, but like you can't talk about, say you're going to talk about uh, evolution or you know how, how evolution works. If you're going to talk to someone who is an evolutionary biologist, you're going to talk to them differently than you're going to talk to someone whose only idea of, of evolution comes from like the public school system in Alabama or whatnot. You're not going to use all, all the same types of terms, same type of terminology and language that you would with a scientist, with someone who never really learned how it worked. Even if you're talking about, you know, cosmology or planetary origins or orbits or anything like that, if, if people don't have a background, they're not going to understand the very depths and intricacies of what is going to happen. So when you are communicating scientific results and scientific studies with people who don't have a scientific background, especially if the person involved in writing and communicating doesn't have a scientific background, things can be very taken out of context and very incorrectly interpreted. And there's not exactly a whole lot that scientists themselves can do about it. And it is a strange world we live in where the people who write these articles may not even talk to the people who did the study. You might have someone who, who wrote about something that someone else did, and they might not even talk to the person who did those things. It's quite insane. So you have to be really careful, especially with what you say in articles. If you say this one thing and you phrase it incorrectly, there's, not, there's a non-zero chance that something bad could come of what you say, even if you didn't mean it. Your studies that you do are not divorced from the political and social implications of what you write down on paper. Words for scientists are like money. Every word that you say in a scientific article, you have to pay for. Every period, every apostrophe, everything you put on that, everything you put on that paper is worth money, and it is worth your credibility. If you say something incorrectly that is construed differently than how you meant it, 
there's nothing that you can really do about it in the end, and so you have to be very careful with what you write. Now, most average, uh, most non-scientific people really aren't going to go dig into um, uh, a journal of microbiology and go read something and, and try and make a conclusion about it. That's not how things typically work. But if you're, especially from a, a larger institution like John Hopkins or something like that, where you're communicating important medical results about COVID or something like that, you might be more um, reserved in how you're interpreting your data and, and how broadly you're going to apply how you, uh, how you communicate your results. For, for lack of a better term. And your conclusions that you get to draw from your study are limited by the scope of your study from step, from step two, from step one and step two, where you're defining your project and you're doing your testing. Like the first part of the scientific method builds up to your analysis and your conclusions, but if you do anything wrong before or if you go too narrow or too broad, there are certain types of, of conclusions that you can't draw from your data. And there are entire people whose jobs is dedicated to wrangling you back on your results and criticizing your results, which is the process of peer review. Um, but now that we kind of have that decent understanding about the scientific method, I, I want to talk about something else real quick. And now I might talk about um, peer review here a little bit, depending on how much time I have or how much time I spend on this next whole section. But what I want to go into now is the perception of science and the perception of scientists, especially in like popular media or whatnot. So the idea that public schools and even undergraduate institutions give about science is this very intense and static method of how things are done in science. It's like you, you observe something, you hypothesize, you test, you draw conclusions, you analyze, you, analyze, you draw conclusions, you know, the, the, the scientific method. But that's not, it, science is not a very rigorous process. It is a rigorous field. And what I mean by that is there are a lot of ways to go about doing science and doing it properly. There is no really one correct way to do science as long as your methods are sound. The scientific process does not end with you drawing conclusions. The scientific process ends with the published results and them standing up to scrutiny over many, many years. There is no there is science, and then there is science with peer review. There, there is the conceptual science, and then there is the actual science. The actual science come, comes whenever you do an experiment. You, prop, you properly do an experiment. You do your results. You present your results to your peers, and your peers are people who are experts in that particular field or that particular subject or have some type of insight that you may not have, X, Y, and Z. But the, the papers are presented to those people who are who, who don't work for... Um, that institution that is publishing, and they read it and they go, here's what we don't like, here's what we do like, change this, don't change this, accept, reject, uh, you know, revise, X, Y, and Z. And that is peer review. That is where the science gets really starting to split hairs because if you have people who are an expert in something that you're not really an expert on and you do something that A, has already been done or you do it incorrectly, they're not going to likely they're not going to approve that and they're going to say this is good this is bad redo this or reject it outright and you might say well that doesn't really seem fair but like that's that's not where peer review ends peer review does not end with publishing peer review ends with time with people 
basing their their studies off of what you have written and if they find what you have written is incorrect they can publish their results about it incorrect and your article can basically be thrown to the wayside it can be corrected it can be you know not corrected but it can be revised or taken down there are ways to do it there are scientific corrections that happen scientific scientist science excuse me does not end with you presenting something people are going to accept what you say, as long as it is well presented, and they are going to continue on, and they're going to continue on testing. If they find something different from you, they find something different from you. And if their methods are sound, well, now we have now we have a way to go about things that you know you might end in uh, one idea being rejected because of some certain type of error or some certain type of um, a certain type of assumption that might be made. Uh, adjustments have to be drawn, but their science is kind of polluted by the idea that there is a specific order in which things happen in which the the idea that you get to go in and sit down at a bench and say I am going to achieve this result and you do and you take that thing that you've written down by hand in organic chemistry and you work towards that conclusion that known conclusion and you discover your, you, you, you appropriately do an experiment is not science. You, in school, you are limited by the time in which um, you have to perform an experiment and you are guided to learn something, which is different than what science is, which is the investigation of the natural world, which is the continued um, understanding of certain natural phenomena. And I, I think our public school system and our, and our, and our, um, and our movies and our TV shows and even, even our culture doesn't understand what science really, really does. Because there, when you look at any type of science dis- portrayed in, in television or how, if you ask people how science operates, they're going to give you a wrong answer. They're going to give you, you sit, you know, you sit down in a lab and then you get money from these ne- maybe nefarious organizations or these organizations that want a specific result. And you go find that result. And while there is some semblance of truth in that that's not true while you have to be specific and um, punctual and timely with your studies with how with what you're going to study how you're going to do it and the implications thereof it's not the same as going through a process in school and being like i'm going to find the cure to cancer by sitting at this lab and doing this process it's it's a discovery it's a process of going about how the natural world works and thinking that scientists are making loads of money by discovering things for big pharma is not true any researcher that i have ever met in my entire scientific career is not in it for the money they're not in it to go hide their work behind a paywall or hide their work behind a monetary wall where most people can't access it. That's not what scientists want. That's not what we're here for. We don't want you to not be able to read our papers. If And here's a little, here's a little tip for you. If you want to read a scientific article and you don't have access to it, email the author. They're really not hard to find, the, the emails of these authors. Email them and they'll send it to you because they don't get paid to publish their articles. They don't get paid Whenever you pay for an article from Nature, they don't get paid. Email them. Ask them for it. They'll send it to you as quickly as they can because they want people to know. They want people to share. Now, don't be going out and publishing incorrect things based on the the papers that you send, especially if you don't have the background in it. But 
we don't get into science because we want to trick you. We don't get into science because we want to control the world. People get into science because they either want to help, they want to know something, they love what they do, they want to make a difference. We don't get into this to, to scare you or to make your life a living hell. That's not why we're here. And having the idea that science is such a, a mechanical process from one step to the next step to the next step is not true. There's lots of adjustments that need to be made, especially when you're undergoing experiments, even if, especially if you're pioneering a field. And there are mistakes that happen, but the corrections don't come from really outside sources. They don't, they don't really come from the, the grants people being like, we don't like your grant, change it up. It's going to come from other scientists who say your conclusions are incorrect. You know, and, and there is there is some not beholdens to money, but there's some limitations by what you can afford because that's simply the world we live in. But people aren't comp as, as from from my experience, they're not compromising their values to get money to perform studies that they don't believe in and lying about results to simply trick you. That's not what happens. I don't study fungal diseases in amphibians. To, to, to try and rule the world by by not having the pet trade introduce foreign pathogens into endangered amphibian species. I don't do this simply for the joy of not letting you get an endangered species of reptile or amphibian brought into America simply to steal joy from you. I don't do this to control you. I do this because I love reptiles and amphibians so much that I'm willing to get it, dedicate my life to try and keep them alive. It's not because people want to keep you from doing things. That's not what scientists are here for. We don't draw conclusions because we hate this thing or we hate that thing. It might influence our area of what we want to study, but we're not going to design experiments or communicate or lie in experiments and results to try and influence the world people we we don't get to influence the world in such a way anything that influences the world gets a nobel prize like that that that's seriously true if there are discoveries or things that are done that are so world changing that we have to change everything about our normal lives those things get nobel prizes those discoveries don't just get to go to the wayside that that's not how this works and I think our public schools and our school systems in general fail students in preparing them for the actual field of science because we think science it is like math. There is one step, it gets you to the next step, it gets you to the next step, and you finally get to draw your conclusion, and that's 100% correct. That's not how this works. Science is about you and your peers and your colleagues working towards the ultimate goal of understanding. Understanding how pathogens work. Understanding... Um, how some cells reproduce and take over an entire area of colonization or, or something like that. And you work with people, you get to know people, you do experiments, you learn, you grow, you laugh, you love together. And that is not simply a, 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 that is not simply how the world works to where normal people, because scientists are people just just like you. We don't. We go home. We we pet our cats. We we watch Game of Thrones. We we do what we do in our off time. Our our entire lives. Well, you know, our entire life shouldn't be wrapped up in in, in our work, but it kind of is sometimes. But we don't do this because that is the only thing that we are 
capable of doing. We have our lives outside of science. We have our other things that we'd like to do. We're, we're people just like you. And having a conversation about the perceptions of science and who scientists are, I think is a really important thing because I, I think people don't get to interact with scientists enough. And I think um, you, you, you probably have a bad understanding of who they are based on conspiracy theories, quite frankly. And I think that science communication, and especially communication like, like this, me, a scientist, communicating with you through video or through audio or something like that, is vitally important. Because scientists, we don't just do this for ourselves. We do it for you. We do it to make a better world for you. We, we do it for the continuance of species. We do it for the continuance of knowledge. We do it for medical reasons. We, we do it for all of these different things because all of these scientists come from different backgrounds and they have points in their lives where they decided and dedicated their lives to the pursuit of knowledge to help the world, to make a change and make a change for the better. That's who scientists are. Hey there, everybody. Thank you for staying with me all the way through the end of this. I know I rambled a little bit, but this was something that's been on my mind for quite a while now. And I just wanted to share that. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of behind the scenes of how the scientific process works and what scientists kind of go through. And so I'm so very thankful that you stayed to the end of this. Please check out my other episodes. Please like and share and spread this around if you liked it. And I will see you next time.